Industrial Security Podcast with Andrew Ginter and Nate Nelson. Sponsored by Waterfall Security Solutions. Hey listeners, and welcome back to the Industrial Security Podcast. My name is Nate Nelson. I'm sitting with Andrew Ginter, the Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions, and he's going to tell us about the subject and guest of today's show. Andrew, how's it going? Very well, thank you, Nate. We have two guests today. Ilan Gendelman is the Chief Technology Officer and co-founder of SIGA OT Solutions, and Hadass Levine is the VP of Sales and Marketing at SIGA. I caught these gentlemen at the podcast Israel Media Offices, and we sat down to discuss today's topic, Intrusion Monitoring at Layer Zero. Andrew, quickly before we begin, does SIGA stand for anything? Not as far as I know. As far as I know, it's just, you know, it's SIGA OT Solutions. Okay. Let's get to your interview with Hadas and Ilan. We're talking today about, uh, you've got some, some technology that works on the, the PLC level. Can you, can you start us at the beginning? I mean, we've got a, uh, a traditional control system. We've got PLCs, we might have safety systems, we have a, a distributed control system, a SCADA system. You know, eventually we might have historians, we might have connections to the IT network. What problem do you solve? Where does, where does your stuff fit? So all you mentioned, which is, if you think in terms of security, is in many, in many ways identical to what you might discuss in the IT world. The problem is that the OT is significantly different than the IT world. And in that sense, just importing the same concept from the IT to the OT is giving uh, important, critical solutions, but not sufficient ones. The core differences are those that implies what the problem is. The first difference, the main difference, is what are you trying to protect? While in the IT world, you're protecting data, all various aspects of data, here you're protecting the actual physical manifestation of all this computerized world the actual process and the actual process in the OT world relies in very very significant level in the level zero of, of the diagram and that's one thing the second thing is the architecture is completely different you have the specific layer of the PLCs which isolate completely a barrier between what is the asset the physical devices and everything you mentioned which lives above it in kind of the IT layer of the OT. And if you take that with the aspect of who is the adversary and who is trying to compromise the system and using the, the concept that I think everybody agrees on that the PLCs will be breached, once the layer one, the level one, the PLCs are breached, this allows an attacker for complete and without any time limit control over the asset, the real asset of the OT. So what I hear you saying is that PLCs are software. They're computers like other computers. They can be breached. The difference is that they're actually controlling the physical world. Once we breach a PLC, we're in trouble because the PLC can now do bad things to your very costly, very, very valuable physical process. So SIGA has some technology here that 
deals with that? What do you have? Where does it fit? So I want even to uh, add to your description. It's not only that PLC is a software and that once it's breached, it can do bad things. That's true for probably any piece of software. What's unique about that, that the PLC is the only real piece of software that sees the actual process. And once it's breached, it's not only might do bad things, it will control fully what will be seen by any system above security, operational safety, anything above. That's part of the uniqueness. So we aim the solution to focus on the asset, on the process. And we looked for ways, what's the ultimate way to actually identify whether the process, the, the real asset of the OT layer, is doing what it's supposed to do. So we are seated in the last point, in the last barrier, when the information is 100% true and untempered. Exactly as I said, where there is no computers yet in work, in progress. So we are seated on the lines between the PLCs and the sensors and actuators, duplicating the signal and using this unique information for all we do. So that's an interesting point that uh, Ilan made there. Um, the the PLC is not just the device that you know can control the physical world. This is what everybody focuses on. It's also the device that can blind all of the rest of the system to what's happening in the physical world because the PLC is what translates physical readings into the the digital messaging that goes out on on networks and other systems can see. You know, it kind of recalls Stuxnet and how the the people overseeing those subterfuges didn't know what was going on for months on end as the hackers were manipulating them. Precisely, precisely. So, you know, the the Stuxnet worm once it got into the PLC, it recorded a bunch of normal readings and then started doing its damage, but when anybody asked the PLC, what are your values, it would replay those normal readings. And so all the operators saw was green lights while things were blowing up in the, uh, in the physical process. And, you know, the other thing that I think is, as we're talking about this stuff is, is PLCs, you mentioned PLCs are software and software to me always, always seems like it's hackable. So this the power of a PLC to an attacker combined with the fact that it's basically just a computer program um, seems to me like a very sensitive issue. It, it is, it is. But, you know, I think Ilan's point is not that they have a hardware PLC. It's not that they have an unhackable PLC. What they're doing is, you know, their stuff is tapping into the hardware readings before those readings get to the PLC. And so their stuff cannot be fooled, I think, is the uh, the, the point he was making. What are those signals? I mean, I'm familiar with the, the, the 4 to 20 milliamp signaling system that PLCs use. Is that it? Are there other kinds of signaling that, that, that are involved there? What, what is that level? So again, the, the most common is the 4 to 20 milliamps and the um, 0 to 10 millivolts for discrete information. That's the most common, but we are not limited to any type of, of signal. We can duplicate any signal. We did very complex things using thermocouples. Uh, it's all a matter of duplicating the signal in a way that 100% does not tamper uh, with the signal in any way and send the information to us being completely isolated from the system but having the full scope of information. 
in any resolution, in any sampling rate, we, we need it. That sounds very interesting, but uh, you know, can you give me the big picture? You've, you've talked about gathering very low-level electrical signals. You know, it's, it's one thing to imagine uh, a piece of hardware that'll gather the signal. What do you do with it? What's, what's the big picture? How does, that, how does that electric signal turn into useful information? So we, the full chain is starting from the duplication, the secure duplication, transforming it this still analog information to digital information, and that's the point where we can choose sampling and resolution. From that point, which is still in pretty much in the PLC's cabinet physically, we collect it on the local agent and securely send it to our analysis uh, server. The analysis server can be on-prem, depending on client's name, can be cloud, I mean, in our cloud, it can be in, in the client's personal, uh, private cloud, and that's where the real work starts. So that's where we focus, while we look on the product as the whole sequence, the actual work we do is with this information, how to use the unique attributes of information that represent process to bring the maximal benefit to the client in terms of security, but also in terms of operation. Okay, so um, you're gathering the data, you're analyzing it. How do you know if it's right? I mean, the the, the control system is uh, starting up a boiler and you know starting up the furnace and heating things up and starting to generate electric power. There's sensors all over a power plant or all over a refinery, a catalytic cracker. Uh, you know, the values are going up and down. If you're working with a copy of the information, how do you know what's supposed to be happening? So I, I can go back later to, to the other benefits, but your question is is touching the, the most critical, the most advanced part of, of the solution, is using the machine learning algorithms developed by the company, uh, not just off the shelf, but developed by the company, specifically to use information gathered for a period of time, which define either normal or partially normal, extract the normal parts of this information, and based on this information, build a, a valid barrier around what is normal, and alert once we, we see a deviation from that. Now, let me just co small comment on this issue, because if you throw a stone to the internet pool, you'll see machine learning, anomaly detection, anything on the same, everybody's saying this. What we makes us very effective is being tested every minute of every day. Our algorithms use on process deviation. Process deviation does not need to be security related. And in this sense, if once you install a security system and a, a network level security system, which is supposed to attack anomaly is on the network, how do you test it? You pen test it? Are you really going, does a client really allow pen testing a live setup? In most cases, no. It will be tested in a lab once and that's it. We are tested every minute or every day because every small operational change that happens on the system, the client says, did you identify it? Did you not identify it? And that's one thing. The other thing, being an operational system, I mean, living in the same operational world of the process, any false alert is an issue. So one of the main be benefit of our algorithms is how do we focus on a very, very low and contained level of false alerts 
Otherwise, an operational system on this, on a process level, becomes completely unusable if we are passing this threshold. So you have uh, a machine learning system. You know, the, one of the goals of the machine learning system has to be to minimize false alarms. How do you do that? So we are saying more than just what you're saying, that we need to minimize false alerts. Because anybody dealing with detection wants to minimize false alerts. Because we are seated where we're seated, because we are handling process-level information, because we are not just cyber-related, we are also operational-related, a level of false alert that might be fully accepted on IT protection level cannot be accepted on operational level. So our, all, the, all our development is focused on how we mitigate the, the level of false alerts. So what we do, we narrow the tunnel all the time. So we start at some point and we aim to a specific level of false alert. The price of aiming to that that we detect much less. We are ready not to detect some level of anomalies on the process because we are not 100% sure in order to gain a low level of false alert. But as more information as we gather, it allows us to narrow this tunnel and to be more precise on the smaller deviation of the process while maintaining the same target false alert. Nate, what I found really interesting there, um, you know, harks back to my own experience 10 years ago when I was building intrusion detection and, and you know, security monitoring systems. The, the constant challenge back there is you're getting you know, gigabytes of data into the system every day, um, a lot of which are log messages, a lot of which could translate into alerts. And you've got this constant tension between uh, false positives, which is false alarms, because your system is too sensitive, and false negatives, which is missing real attacks, because you made your system uh, too let's say, insensitive, uh, you, you produce fewer false alarms, but you record fewer real attacks as well. And this, this tension, you know, between, you know, the, it was constant adjustment that was needed because there's only so many alerts you can handle in a day. You know, you might say, all I can handle is 20 alerts in a day. That's all I have the means to investigate. Tuning the system to produce only 20 alerts was a real challenge. And what I just heard uh, Ilan say is that you know, they set that target in their system. The system tunes itself and produces the desired number of alerts per day. You know, one per week, 20 per week, 20 per day, whatever whatever you program. That that bit of, you know, that nugget of, of automation, I thought, was was uh, inspired. You know, I've, I've heard of this paradigm um, in the IT sense, you know, because, you know, for example, large companies, um, those places are getting hit by, by cyber threats, very frequently. And so there's this this constant debate about if you tune it up, suddenly you have so many false alarms along with the real alarms that the people who are looking after this stuff become a little bit numb to all alarms, and then you have another security problem on your hands. And large companies face constant cyber threats, so I imagine that this is a real issue. But I also have an image of my mind where ICS systems are more closed, that there's less sort of chaos going on day to day. So I'm surprised that this is an issue there as well. ICS systems generally are more closed, generally are more stable. It all depends. If you're dealing with a refinery with, you know, 400 people on site every day, um, things are 
changing faster than in a, a you know a physically smaller site. But you also have the question of consequences. The consequences of compromise shutting down a, a billion dollar physical asset uh, for you know a day or two or three, whatever it takes to clean the system out. This is a uh, you know a serious consequence, and of course, there's there's even worse possible, and so a lot of people want to increase the sensitivity of their security monitoring and intrusion detection systems, uh, much more so in these contained environments than they would want to do out on an IT network where there's constant change, and so. If you increase the sensitivity, it starts producing false alarms again. So you have this problem in 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 both uh, environments, in my experience. And I have another question about uh, something that you guys were talking about. To what extent is this process handled by a machine learning algorithm versus uh, people at computer monitors? Because I can imagine the application of machine learning here, um, but at the same time, I, I wouldn't necessarily want to trust it with the entire responsibility. You know, that's a good point too. What Elan did not say is they produce N alerts per week because that's their goal and the organization investigates those N alerts and nothing else. You know, if I were deploying this and I had the means to investigate, let's say, five alerts per week, I would make, you know, set a goal of, uh, I don't know, 20 alerts per week and say to the machine learning algorithm, take your best shot, Give me your best analysis, and when I see these alerts come up, I'm not going to go, you know, launch a, uh, you know, a potential intrusion investigation or any other kind of uh, anomaly investigation. The first thing I'm going to do is look at the alert, and you know, compare it to the other alerts that have come in this week, and ask the machine, you know, what's the data look like? Why do you think we have a problem? And in a sense, second guess the machine. I'm going to pick my five out of the twenty the machine gives me, um, but you know, I am grateful that the machine's given me 20 and not 2,000 because I can filter 5 out of 20. I can't filter 5 out of 2,000. Pick uh, an industrial process that, that you folks you, you know, run into routinely. Uh, can you give me an example of, of what you would learn about it and, you know, what, what would constitute a, a condition worthy of, of producing an alert in that process? We are physically installed in various in, uh, industries which are completely different one from the other. We are installed in various uh, water facilities uh, and while we're installed in uh, in uh, gas turbine, in, in uh, electric manufacturing, in chemical plants, completely different processes, using the same set of algorithms, producing the same level of effective alerts. So if you're looking for a specific example, a very, very good example is a, a chemical process uh, uh, manufacturing. Uh, we have, for example, installation in bromide pro, uh, manufacturing. And what, for example, comes an alert, and again, we can discuss alerts because we are not limited to cyber. I mean, if you ask how many real cyber attacks reach the, the final level of, was well, hard to tell. But because we are looking on any operational uh, misfunction, we have dozens of, of examples so for example we had we had a case where the bromide process worked as normal everything nothing was alerted but at some point it's it put a half weight to the uh, to the um, I don't know how you call it the container there and then evacuated and put it again and the whole process if you look at it on the end point 
was not notified noticed but anyway on the PLC level on the HMI level on the on the actual post monitoring and the system alerted now this information went straight to the uh, operational guys on site allow them to see that at this point something went completely wrong of what they expected and there was no other tool that was alerting on that so before we get deeper into this example Andrew what is bromine well I had to look it up um, bromine is an element it's it's in the periodic table apparently the uh, the the most common use for bromine is as a fire retardant and uh, it's because you know certain compounds with bromine in them uh, you know latch on to oxygen sort of more effectively than uh, hydrocarbons do hydrocarbons tend to be what's burning um, and it interrupts the uh, the chemical reaction that that, that is the fire uh, bromine is is produced worldwide you mostly out of saltwater deposits uh, not necessarily the ocean but uh, you know inland lakes like the uh, you know uh, the Salt Lake in the United States or the Dead Sea in the Middle East um, tend to have higher concentrations of and accessible concentrations of bromine. So, you know, this is the, uh, the the process he's talking about is purifying bromine, I think, out of salt water. What I'm hearing you say is, is uh, you know, there's, there's two benefits to this. If something goes physically wrong, it might be a result of malicious activity. You know, it might be a cyber hacker. It might be an insider who's, you know, got a screwdriver messing with things. Um, but it might also be, in a sense, normal errors and omissions. It might be, it might be wear and tear. It might be a problem that the SCADA system is not programmed to recognize but it, you know, it sounds like you, you know, because you've got this machine learning going on, you're adding value in terms of, of you know, detecting any kind of, of unexpected anomaly. Well, I'll just add something that because of the fact that we're located where we are in the process and monitoring the electrical signals, the amount of data that we are exposed to or, or accumulating is far greater than what you'll see in upper layers. You have a filtering process that's going on and a data smoothing process that's occurring as the PLC is then taking the electrical signals and almost translating them, okay, and filtering the data as it goes upward in the process. So we're exposed and we have the availability of the totality of data because we see the electrical signals and we're operating on that basis. So between that and the extreme, I would say extreme sampling rates that we're able to achieve, relatively speaking, and especially when we talk about legacy systems, we're getting so much more information. So many times, this, this, I think this is almost a, an expected type of occurrence that, that Elon just uh, related to in a bromine uh, manufacturing facility where basically the operators had no idea and they didn't see it in their system. It was literally lost in translation between the electrical signal and the data packets. And if I go back to your question, this was exactly what we are saying. What you described is both allows us to bring much more value to the client upon installation and it keeps us much more on our toes in sense of being all the time uh, in actual 
work in progress and being all the time monitored in, in the good sense. Now, that was Hadass uh, talking initially. He did not say the words uh, industrial Internet of Things. But to me, that's what he was describing. And, you know, uh, he was describing a, a big data application. We have the ability, he has the ability to do high-res sampling of physical signals, pump them out into the, into the cloud, lots of them, drop a machine learning algorithm on top of it, and draw useful conclusions. I mean, you know, people have been talking about the, inter- the industrial Internet of Things for a long time. There's the actual live examples of how to use this are few and far between. I mean, the classic example is predictive maintenance. But here you've got an example of pushing the data in the cloud and drawing useful conclusions from it, which which I found very interesting. Okay, so um, can we can we step back to the, the even bigger picture? You've described technology for monitoring at the low level. You've described the, uh, the machine learning engine. Uh, an, an alerting system. These higher level systems, where are they typically installed? Is this an OT SOC? Are they connected to the IT SOC? Is it an operations thing other than a SOC? Who, who uses this information? How does it, it work at the high level? So one of the huge benefits of the type of connection that we're using is that by definition, this is an out-of-band connection. And this allows us to take any system as secure as disconnected uh, as can be, and without any compromise to the system, pull this information and push it anywhere which is needed by the client. So we have a whole solution sending this information to a via cloud uh, server to a SOC, which specifically built for the OT layer. And we have a solution which pushes to the same solution on-prem for, of, of the client, uh, it can be visible both cloud-based by the SOC and by the client uh, on-prem. And we have uh, uh, solutions, I mean, I mean, we have installations where information is uh, sent to uh, to government agencies for uh, gathering and collecting in parallel to the information. I think what, what I'm hearing you say is that the... Uh, the network your equipment is deployed on is not the same as the OT network. You've got your own network going? You've got some isolation there? I'll just add that um, being out of band I think is really the most important point here. What network we're in, that's we, we're completely, we can work with any network really that the client uh, or that the uh, owner wants us to work with. Uh, we can work totally on-prem or in the cloud or various different types of, of networks, but what's really important is the fact that we're out of band. But I think that the fact that the network is l- less important really than the fact that we're completely out of band, unreachable, and basically as a result of that, also unhackable. So in, in addition to what I'm saying, not only unhackable, unnoticeable. So any intruder on the operational level cannot say one way or the other whether the system is protected or not by SIGA. And related again to what Hadassah was saying, in real life, and we have personal experience in that, in real life events, cyber events on OT layer, the, all the information that at this point now relies on the historian or any accumulated is considered to be compromised. So it's, it makes the forensic almost impossible to understand what really happened, even once the intrusion was 
identify and stop it's very very hard to analyze going back what exactly what happening at which at which point on the most critical OI process layer Andrew anytime anybody says the word unhackable I clench a little bit yeah that, I think that's a little bit of market speak but uh, you know he does have a point my question asked how's this information flow and what I took out of his answer is that the most useful way in from a from a from a security perspective to arrange the flow of information is to have the SIGA equipment report to let's call it the you know the big data cloud on the internet through a communication channel a separate communication channel independent from the control system network the IT network and you know out to the internet if you've got a separate communications channel going there um, now the bad guys let's say they get into operations and they start stirring the pot with PLCs they look around how can they tell that their activity is being monitored at the physical layer by the SIGA systems well, they can't. There's no indication of that layer of that that monitoring in the process because it's happening at the the physical layer. And you know, to me, that's that's the the logical way to arrange this if you want the security benefits. If you're primarily interested in insights into operations, you can arrange it any way you want. But for security benefits, you do it. To me, that's that's what out of band means. It means you're on a different network. You know, in the words of radio frequency, you're on a different band. Nobody, you know, you're not interfering with the main stuff. You're communicating in a different way with different systems, and nobody can tell you're there. Okay, but what I'm still a little bit unclear on is, is it not possible to imagine an attack that comes in from the Internet through the SIGA equipment to modify these physical processes? Well, it's it's certainly theoretically possible. I mean, anything that's connected is theoretically hackable. Um, I think there's two answers here. One is that um, the SIGA equipment, the fact that it's monitoring a physical process is invisible to the process. And so it's it's hard to tell this is going on. It's hard even to, to, to understand where to look for that if you wanted to try and interfere with it. And, you know, the second point is that it doubles the, the cost of your attack. Now you don't have to, if you want, you know, if you know that SIGA is involved, now you've got to hack SIGA and you've got to hack your target. You know, the, the name of the game in security is making things harder to do, much harder to do. But to your question of could the SIGA communication channels themselves be an opportunity to modify the physical process, I think the answer is no. In my understanding, uh, you know what I got from from their description is that the mechanisms that they use to tap into the four to twenty milliamp loops and the zero to ten millivolt um, signaling systems is physically one way. Even if you hack, even in the worst case, if you hack the SIGA equipment, it's not physically possible to modify the the, the process. You cannot send a physical signal back into the process. It's physically a a monitor only interface, which is in my books, you know the right way to do this. Okay, let's get back to your interview. So this all sounds very interesting, but you know, can you compare uh, your system to uh, sort of a classic defense in-depth model? You've got perimeter protection, there's intrusion detection, there might be anti-malware, there's, there's a whole range of, of systems installed on these, these OT networks. Where do you fit? Do you replace one or more of these systems? Do you augment them? How, how do you fit in defense in depth? So all what you ma- mentioned are very important a uh, part of protecting the OT uh, ecosystem. And it's a complex environment to protect. 
and all you just mentioned is seated in the kind of IT layer or a level of the OT and network related and and network entities related and aimed mainly to protect an attacker to reach and affect the actual process and it's basically building high walls around those uh, this uh, OT ecosystem and those high walls are important they must be in place what we are saying that while they are in place an attacker a determined attacker as the OT environment is is looking at will pass those walls and will reach the PLC level and once the PLC level is compromised everything there is inefficient has no value at all and what is exposed is the actual asset the actual process so we are closing this main core of what is important the process itself working in parallel in addition to the existing solution building a whole complete ecosystem around a protective ecosystem around the OT environment so Hadas you've been you've been working with prospective customers where's where where do you see the most excitement who's getting the most excited about these capabilities so on one hand obviously the cybersecurity is screaming uh, again because of the fact we're out of ban and all the basic uh, attributes that we have there but having this much data at our disposal if you will allows us to go into very very complicated and delicate and sensitive and costly many times manufacturing processes and provide them insight and, and benefit um, we've seen that several in several different applications one was in a silicon wafer manufacturing operation for example where the batches are very sensitive both in terms of time and cost of pr- uh, production time and uh, sensitivity in terms of time to delivery etc uh, where we're able to see and help them in, in those type of situations uh, many times we see that in critical infrastructure as well not from a cybersecurity standpoint necessarily but just from a uh, operational reliability and process optimization uh, optimization standpoint um, <coughs> we see that almost in in most facilities that are involved with again I call critical infrastructure which includes beyond just power and energy supply but also water is such a critical critical area and we're able then to help those facilities in terms of optimize optimizing basically their operations whether it be identifying for example in one facility a pump that was not pumping the required quantities and again was basically below the radar that the normal scatter system was able to, to detect but we're seeing deeper into that in one case we were called in to assist a electrical uh, corporation a utility company to help them determine where why they weren't able to ignite basically a gas-fired turbine and um, we were brought into the facility they were looking already for quite some time they were looking at a substantial period of downtime where generator was basically offline with uh, basically tearing down the system stage by stage and we were actually applied and we were able to determine exactly the point of anomaly Uh, within the first day of our of our application to that particular site so when I listened to Hadass there uh, one of the things that struck me was that um, this technology is a good fit for very fussy physical processes 
you know, the, the technology, the SIGA technology taps into the, the physical signals, the physical sensors at the very lowest level, and the rest of the solution has no idea they're there, which is a great thing because some of these control systems, he gave the example of a, a, a semiconductor fab. This is a very fussy system. You know, some control systems are designed to very fine tolerances, and the smallest change is going to set them off their pace and, and, and risk a shutdown. You know, changes as simple as put a new machine on the network, send a few new messages across the network, put a little bit of software on one of the machines that's already on the network. Any kind of change like this risks uh, messing up the, the, the logic of the control system. And one of the beauties of the SIGA system is that it's completely outside that. And even if you have a fussy control system, you can still install this stuff. As someone who's who's struggled with fussy control systems for most of my career, you know, to me, this is a big benefit. And when Hadass was talking about igniting the natural gas turbine, can you can you give me detail about how that actually happens? Yeah. So um, he talked about igniting a turbine, and you know, you you don't ignite uh, a water turbine; you ignite a natural gas turbine, uh, or you know, in theory, you ignite a jet turbine. But basically, you know. I, I didn't ask, but I'm guessing he's talking about a uh, a natural gas power plant. Uh, a natural gas, you know, the, the the generator is connected with an axle, you know, a rod of of metal that's spinning, to basically a stationary jet engine that you pump natural gas in. You ignite it, and you have a very very noisy uh, spinning, you know, source of of uh, rotational energy that spins the generator and produces electricity. These things are big. These things are complicated. And, you know, he described a scenario where they couldn't get the thing lit. You know, I assume the control system is saying, well, you know, there's 500 sensors on the thing. Here's the current value of each of the sensors. But the process of lighting the thing, you know, I would imagine takes only a fraction of a second. And, uh, you know, the control system is not giving the, the, the operators enough insight into what's happening to be able to diagnose the physical problem. And, uh, you know, what I heard the SIGA, what I heard it ask say was that the, the SIGA stuff very quickly, because it was physically sampling at a very high rate, very quickly gave the engineers the insight into, oh, these three sensors, I can see the problem right now. The time trace, it's not supposed to look like this. It's supposed to look like that. You know, fix the problem and, and, and get going. So, uh, again, it's an example of where you can use very fine-grained information to gain operational benefits, you know, in addition to, you know, this is the Industrial Security Podcast, in addition to the, the security benefits. All right, let's get to the end of your interview. We'd like to leave our guests with the last word. Is there a thought you'd like to leave with our listeners? Yeah, I think that uh, in general, uh, I think we need to be very careful not to make assumptions. We need to always monitor and see in real time what the actual end device or apparatus is doing. We've seen crashes of airplanes recently. We've seen a lot of other types of very problematic, even life-threatening situations. We need to keep our eye all the time on the device itself and see exactly what's going on with that device. What's interesting about this technology is it allows us to do that, whereas the present approach right now, especially when we look at the Purdue model, we're very, very focused on upper layers. But the question is, are we giving the due attention and time and focus that we need to on the end devices themselves? 
And basically, I think that this technology really fills a very, very needed gap and void in our present approach to monitoring OT systems. So I noticed Hadas say that, you know, we're not really thinking enough about protecting endpoint devices. Is that really true? From my perspective, we've spoken to at least a, a couple of guests who have been uh, interested in that very matter. I think it's it's unfair to say that, that nobody's interested in protecting the endpoints. I think it's, you know, all of the layers of protection that, that, that the Purdue model affords um, is designed to protect, you know, to prevent misoperation of the PLCs. Uh, but I think, you know, to Hadassah's point, it is fair to say that if an intruder gets close to the PLCs, almost none of these PLCs have any built-in, any, any you know, significant built-in security features. And, and often, if they have security features, they've been disabled because they, they interfere with operations or because it's it, there's a concern that they might interfere with operations or, you know, just because there's a concern that this is added complexity that we don't need in a, a network where we really need to understand what's happening in order to control the physical process correctly. So, you know, the PLCs are soft targets, most of them, once you get close to them for, for a variety of reasons. But, you know, what I took away from the uh, the from his comments it was more the, the 737 MAX uh, airplane crash analogy. Um, you know, when the investigators got hold of the black boxes, and try to figure out what happened. Well, what evidence did they have? They had the conversations between the pilots. That's one kind of evidence that the black boxes preserve. But they also had evidence from the sensors. The black boxes in these uh, aircraft um, record a lot of sensor readings and a lot of information about what the computer is doing second by second. And so they could presumably see things like... um, hey, you know, this sensor started giving a different reading than that sensor, and, you know, the the autopilot dropped the nose, and then the pilot overrode it and raised the nose again, and then the sensor thing, you know, the autopilot kicked in again. This kind of detailed recording of, you know, second by second what's happening in a physical process um, is is very important to engineers who are trying to diagnose problems with the physical process, whether those problems be, you know, are, are caused by malicious actors or not. Um, you know, it's, it's physical recordings. It's uh, in a sense, it's all the same to the, to the solution that's, that's doing the recording. So, um, you know, I thought that was a, an, an apt uh, analogy there. Okay, and that'll just about do it for us today. Thanks to Elon and Hadas for sitting down with you. And thank you, Andrew, for sitting down with me. Thank you, Nate. We'll catch you next time. This has once again been the Industrial Security Podcast. Bye for now.